Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we find out why applying for a job has become a job in of itself with an ever-growing number of steps and hoops to jump through. Why and is it necessary? China's population actually fell in 2022 for the first time in six decades. And the country's about to lose its position as the world's most populous to India. We find out what kind of impact that could have on the global economy and on the Canadian one. Global News investigative reporter Ashley Stewart joins us to talk about her work digging into and debunking a Canadian-born conspiracy theory surrounding the COVID-19 vaccine and the deaths of a number of physicians. But first, a shock in politics as New Zealand's celebrated Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern resigned suddenly, saying she just didn't have it in the tank to go on with an election coming up in October. We look at her legacy and why some leaders decide to see power long before voters force them out. Let's start tonight, where it's already Thursday, in New Zealand. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who has announced she is stepping down. Today I'm announcing that I will not be seeking re-election. And that my term as Prime Minister will conclude no later than the 7th of February. I am leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility. The responsibility to know when you are the right person to lead and also when you are not. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. Some pretty heartfelt words there from the very popular New Zealand Prime Minister. Uh, I'll always remember that speech she gave at the United Nations when she arrived with her husband and her partner and young child uh, and caused a storm. She became something of a celebrity as well. I mean, much I don't think that's what she was out there for, but she was certainly much appreciated. Um, she confirmed there'll be a national election for October of this year. She'll continue as a Labour Member of Parliament, uh, what she has been since 2008. But she said it was time to go. Anyone who leaves this place thinking that the job's done didn't have enough of a to-do list. Uh, Of course, there will be things that I wish I could have continued working on, but I also have no regrets. And joining me now from the capital, Wellington, is Aaron Daman. He's chief political reporter at New Zealand's News Talk, ZB. Thanks so much for taking some time on what I'm sure is a really busy Thursday for you. Good good afternoon, Ben. Busy is perhaps an understatement. A bombshell afternoon, let me tell you. I mean, this is something none of us expected to come back to after our summer break, which was all beaches, very Kiwi summer, <laughs> and then this. That's right. Uh, that's right. Of course, it's the summer. It's the dead of winter here. It's the heart, It's the height of summer there, right? So, I don't want to make you jealous. <laughs> uh, but what a surprise. So so really, I mean, you, you, you cover this all the time. Really, this came as a shock. This did come as a total shock. I mean, uh, there has been murmurings and talk of, well, how long can Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern keep going? When is it that she will perhaps step down? But there was also murmurings that she would stick around and try and win the election. If she won the election, then perhaps pass the baton on to her uh, deputy, Grant Robertson. Uh, But none of that is happening because... By February 7th, Jacinda Ardern will no longer be New Zealand's Prime Minister. In fact, we could have a new Prime Minister as soon as Sunday. And in fact, her successor definitely won't be Grant Robertson, our current Deputy Prime Minister. He's already said, uh, I'm not interested in the job, which very much opens the door 
to a number of members of that Labour government, of that Labour caucus. Uh, and, I mean, this was meant to be a typical uh, start of the year retreat. National, uh, the opposition currently, they do it. Labour does it. They all get together, the MPs. They're all in there sure. uh, here in New Zealand in their jandals and their shorts. Uh, and then um, and then they decide um, what, what to pursue, what policies to go after that year. Uh, but uh, this retreat was very different. Yeah, because you were on holiday, I believe, if I, if I read your email correct. I guess the whole press gallery was on holiday right now. Many of the press gallery were on holiday. I was uh, as well. In fact, the last week I've actually spent um, in bed with COVID, um, oh, perhaps sorry. picked up travelling around around the country. Um, but today, actually, out of isolation, today we have a seven-day isolation period, um, and today was my first day out of isolation. But this all happened at the retreat in Napier, and my um, colleague, uh, and indeed a number of colleagues, uh, were there. Uh, right. But again, expecting a, an easing into election year. Nothing like this. Yeah, I mean, it was obviously an emotional decision for her. You could tell at one point she pauses. Um, she starts to, you know, she starts to choke up a bit. I mean, this must have been a difficult decision for her to make because from a, from afar, it looks like she had a lot left in the tank, but I guess she simply felt, felt like she didn't. Exactly. And this is a really interesting observation you make because, of course, overseas, Jacinda Ardern is, has become a form of a celebrity. I heard you use the word just, uh, just a few moments ago. Uh, and she's become, in a way, the toast of the world for many of the moves that she's made as Prime Minister, whether we're talking about uh, the, the, the banning of firearms after, um, or many firearms after the March 15 terrorist attack, um, whether we're talking uh, about a number of different progressive policies. But here in New Zealand, that shine was just starting to come off. Uh, During the COVID pandemic, she was very much in in the limelight. She was at the centre of that response and the world-leading response. But then as we started to come out of the COVID pandemic, as we started to resume normality, there were many uh, that argued we hadn't uh, moved fast enough. There were those, of course, that uh, just railed against the government, railed against the restrictions. Uh, Last time we talked, uh, Ben was, of course... Uh, almost a year ago to the day um, right. when we were when we were talking about the the parliamentary protests uh, on on New Zealand Parliament's front lawn, and so mm-hmm. um, and so that is the type of landscape that I think uh, devolved over time. And perhaps Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern went, you know what? I don't want any of that this year. Yeah, I, I gather she was under a fair amount of personal attack as well from those who were vocally opposed or at least vocally opposed to her and also uh, the policies that she had espoused during the pandemic. Absolutely. And and I think that personally for her, um, I mean, it's without a doubt when you're here in New Zealand, there is so much uh, personal vitriol uh, that has come out of the woodwork over the last six months to a year directed at not just at the government, but at Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. It's very common uh, to be in, well, driving around perhaps, and, and you might just see um, sort of a, a defaced um, Prime Minister or, or some sort of poster or that, that's anti-government or anti-Ardern. Of course, the, the, often the, the, the quietest, uh, sorry, not the quietest voices, rather the loudest voices, but they're the ones that are heard, and they certainly don't reflect the majority. But there is a sense, more broadly, that the country uh, feels like it needs to shift perhaps shift towards Christopher Luxon, who's the opposition, the National Party, the Conservative leader here in New Zealand at the moment. 
uh, and perhaps shift towards that government come uh, October 14, which is the election date, which incidentally was also announced today, but will very much be uh, overshadowed by the Prime Minister's announcement. I tell you, Aaron, it all sounds so familiar if you're Canadian, although, I mean, a lot of the same debates going on here. Justin Trudeau as well. I mean, he's been also celebrated for his progressive policies. The shine has also come off, at least according to the polls. Many, there is a new conservative leader that people are taking a good look at. He's uh, come with a very different style. Uh, when, you, when you look at, at, at the timing of this, though, uh, for Jacinta Ardern, I, I guess it makes sense, right? I mean, uh, it was either now or never as far as an election coming up in October is concerned. Absolutely. You're, you're 100% right. It was now or never because any closer to the election and you start to really look like you're jumping from a sinking ship. She maintains, look, that's not the reason. I just got to the start of the year and went, mm, geez, I don't have much in the tank. Funnily enough, just at the end of last year, we all sit down and have end-of-year interviews with the Prime Minister. And in those interviews, she did say she still had passion for the job. She still uh, wanted to do it. But I think probably uh, behind the scenes or privately, she went, OK, I'm going to take these couple of weeks off. Uh, and if I come back into the new year, you know, planning to rearing to go, then great. And if not, well, then we'll see what happens. And it, it ultimately was the latter that played out. But you're right, any later, and it starts to look very political, uh, and then she just has to stick with it. Now, it gets very interesting because, in my mind, I went Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, you'll recall, perhaps in 2017, she became leader and in two months basically just yeah. completely turned the tables and, and became Prime Minister in a coalition government uh, after Labour was, was far, far behind in the polls uh, against an incumbent uh, government. And so... Well, I think she, she, she would have won the election campaign. But the issue was these, well, now, uh, what's that, nine or ten months before the election campaign starts, uh, that, that everyday stuff that just starts to, to gnaw away, uh, that starts to kind of eat away at, at, at the reputation of both her and the government, and whether or not the opposition would have been able to, to get a big enough lead ahead of the campaign starting. Uh, to, to, to ultimately win the election. My first question is, I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. Uh, we, of course, uh, have a, a higher proportion of men in politics. It, it's reality because two women meet. It's not simply because of the agenda. Jacinda Ardern, the soon-to-be former Prime Minister of New Zealand. She announced her resignation today, Thursday, in New Zealand. A big shock to everyone there, a big shock around the world. Of course, she's well-known. That's a press conference she gave with Finland's Prime Minister not long ago when she responded uh, quite curtly to a question about whether they were meeting uh, because they were the same age and gender. Aaron Daman, Chief Political Reporter at New Zealand's News Talk ZB, is with us this half hour to talk about it. Um, you've dealt with her. You've sat down with her. What was she like or what has she been like? like she seems so unflappable and and she seemed to have such a, an ability to say the right thing at the right time under in many circumstances Jacinda Ardern was an excellent communicator and a real top draw uh, prime minister in that respect I mean she was the type of person you wanted in control of a crisis we looked at uh uh, March 15, the Christchurch terrorist attack, uh, that tragic terrorist attack in 2019. I remember working on the breaking news desk and that, that news breaking. Uh, and, and then uh, really everyone in the newsroom looking up as Jacinda Ardern addressed the nation. I still get goosebumps when, when I hear those words. She said something uh, sort of along the lines of, 
uh, we can confirm there are this many people um, that have died, and you just you, you couldn't believe that this was happening in New Zealand. And then, of course, you know, it, it's a it's a smorgasbord, unfortunately, of, of of sadness, of tragedy, of grief that New Zealand has had to face. We've got Fakati White Island, uh, right. the eruption. Uh, as well that, that she that she had to respond to, and then of course the COVID pandemic and a number of other things uh, on the sidelines as well. And all along, uh, she was empathetic. Um, she was very much um, a, a prime minister who wanted to be seen as being human, uh, who wanted to be seen uh, as, as being as being there uh, and doing the right thing. Uh, where Jacinda Ardern struggled, uh, incidentally, was was the day to day. It was the right. it was the kind of having the aspirational policy program, having the big ideas, and then actually doing them. It was well and good, uh, sort of all well and good in, in a crisis, responding, reacting, but actually trying to set the agenda and trying to push forward change and then communicate that change uh, was was actually really difficult. Uh, so, an excellent communicator in a crisis. But this government has really struggled with communicating some of its key policy, policy ideas. One of those, for example, uh, is, is a big reform of our, of our water system. Everyone agrees right. that we need um, healthy drinking water. Uh, but the way that the government has done it and centralising and bringing together uh, sort of all the different water uh, regulators in a way into four key agencies, well, that hasn't gone down very well with many people at all. And a big reason for that, uh, many critics and many commentators have said, is the lack of communication from the government. And so uh, it has really been uh, a tale of, of, of two halves in a way. Yeah, because there is a bit of a two-edged sword to having a, a, a prime minister or a leader who's popular abroad is that sometimes at home you're, you see why they're popular abroad. You can see the appeal. But sometimes you need them to do you know, the grunt work, the day-to-day stuff, the, the unglamorous stuff. And sometimes you're right. Sometimes there it's not as successful. Um, some of the same reasons that makes them so appealing to a worldwide audience can sometimes take away from their ability to do that sort of you know, down-in-the-trenches politicking that needs to be done to get things done. There will be very few of my colleagues, if any, who won't at some point in their careers covering Jacinda Ardern have sat in a speech or sat in in an address, perhaps the Harvard address last year, which I think many people across the House agreed was was a remarkable address from a head of state and not kind of got goosebumps or not got that kind of, you know, enthralled a little bit in the words that she used because she was just so good when it came to those key moments. But it's the boring stuff. It's the mundane stuff. It's it's the kind of it's the un, the non glamorous, the, the the unsexiness of leadership, um, where perhaps that, that there was a real struggle. And on top of that, of course, um, was the immense like we uh, like we talked about earlier, the immense backlash, um, particularly post COVID. Uh, you kind of you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You can't do anything right because on one hand you've got people saying no, we want to keep more restrictions because otherwise. Uh, we'll, we'll get another surge in cases, and other people are saying you're restricting us too much. You're restricting our freedoms. Uh, you know this is emblematic of this government and emblematic of this prime minister. So you, you can't win. And yeah, perhaps Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern looked at this year, looked at the election campaign, how ugly it may well have gotten, or indeed may still get, and gone. It's, it's not for me. This might be a good time to tap out. Well, Aaron Dahman, thank you so much for your insight on this. I'll let you get back to what has been a busy day. Thank you so much for taking some time to uh, to fill us in on what's happening in Wellington today. Thanks, Ben. Always a pleasure.
if you've applied for a job recently, you probably already know this, but companies uh, seem to come up with new, higher, and harder hoops to jump through at every turn these days when it comes to applying and getting a job. And that translates often into a number of rounds of interviews that can seem endless if you're the candidate. Uh, arbitrary tests, complex exercises, projects, you name it. Here's an example. <laughs> Here's an example of the interview process gone a bit awry from a movie called The Interns. Charlie McMahon. Nick Campbell. I'm Benjamin. Allison, we're going to ask you a few questions that some of our candidates find a little bit odd. Let's go. No judgment. Shoot. You're shrunken down to the size of nickels and dropped to the bottom of a blender. What do you do? You take her flat on your right, back right, like right. this. You just lay back and enjoy that as breeze. Board, as a feather, Pretend it's a fan. And let the, let the okay, bad flames wrap all around yeah. you like this. <laughs> It's like getting an MRI. Once this blender's on, it's on forever. It's on. Respectfully, I gotta disagree. We sold blenders, and even the best model in the world is only gonna run maybe 10 or 11 hours. So we're getting out, and when we do, we're better off for it, because whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's not so much getting out of the blender, it's what happens next. That's the question. You've got two nickel-sized men free in the world. Think of the possibilities. I mean, I'm I, I top of my head and I'm just my head here. swimming. Sunglass repair? We'd yeah, be hell yeah, on those little screws. Little... Maybe stick us in those submarines that they put in people's bodies to fight diseases. Okay, yeah. you, that's that's not a real thing, the submarines. No. Wait a minute. I thought we were stuck in a blender. Now we're saving lives? <laughs> uh, Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn there in the interns. You get the point, right? Now, there could be a lot of reasons why companies ask questions like you're a nickel in a washing machine. Um they want to make sure they get it right. They want the right person. It's expensive to hire people. It's expensive to onboard them. It's expensive to train them. It's, it's expensive to lose them. So you want to make sure that you're making a good choice. But it's hard to feel like it's not all a little bit much. So what counts as a fair ask from a potential employer? That, always, that isn't always clear. It could depend on the industry, the job level, the purpose. Um, and there's no denying, though, that Candidates are getting a little frustrated. A 2022 survey from a software company called Greenhouse found that 60% of job seekers were, quote, unimpressed by time-consuming recruitment processes. Joining me now with more on this is Becca Carnahan. She's founder of Next Chapter Careers. Becca, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. So it's not our uh, imagination. The interview process has been getting, certainly been getting more elaborate uh, over the past little while. Absolutely. Uh, I think we're seeing that from candidates all over. And people are saying that they have more interviews. They are doing assessments. They're doing work projects. They're doing presentations. There's a lot more steps to the interview process than there have been in the past. Now, I can imagine that that is, that is a good thing in some senses. How is it a good thing? Yeah. And I would agree. I think there are some good things that come with this. There's some bad things too, and I'm sure we'll talk about that. But some of the good things are that when a company is interviewing a, a candidate, they want to make sure that the candidate is a good fit, meaning that they're going to excel in the role, that they are going to add to the company culture and really enjoy being part of this organization. So when we give a candidate time to assess and ha meet multiple people, you're in having more chances to make sure that this is, this is well aligned. Yeah. And that's a good thing because when, you know, obviously hiring is both time consuming. I was a hiring manager. It's, it's time consuming. Hiring the wrong person is expensive, especially after you've onboarded them. You really want to make the right choice. The problem sometimes though, I gather, 
is that you kind of need to make a choice. And sometimes the process can start to get onerous and you start to drive away good candidates. Yes, absolutely. And I think there's a couple of things that come into play here. One is that when a company is going on with the interview with multiple rounds and they're not being transparent about how many rounds of an interview there will be. And I think if a company does have multiple rounds or multiple projects and making sure that candidates know where they stand, that's going to be much easier for them to continue to retain candidates in the pipeline. And then the second piece of it is communication. So you're transparent, but then you're also letting people know when they're not no longer being considered or if they are still being considered where they are in the process so that people don't drop out and they know they have more confidence in the process. Yeah, because the company, the employer is also being interviewed, right? I mean, that's one thing we were always told. It's not just, you're not just searching for an employee. They're also interviewing you through this process. Very much so. And I think that's another benefit of having multiple interviews for the candidate to make sure they have time to ask their questions. We don't want a candidate to only have 30 seconds at the end of one interview to ask really important questions to make sure that this role is well aligned with where they see themselves going next in their career. So what kind of processes are we seeing now for someone, for anyone out there who hasn't uh, been through a job interview in quite a while? How has it gotten more complicated? What are we talking about? Sort of multiple steps? What kind of stuff? Yeah. And it's different for every company and different every industry. So I don't want to scare someone out there who's hearing this and saying like, oh, I actually only had two interviews. Was this entirely wrong? No. And that's not the case. But for some companies, what they might do is an initial screen. So a a recruiter or someone from HR might reach out, have a short conversation with someone. um, And that's pretty typical. Uh, Other companies, instead of doing that initial screen, might do an online assessment. So I've seen some one-sided interviews where it is a, you submit a video to talk, answer one question, uh, or you do an online assessment, answer some questions. So there's some different screeners that folks are going through before they're actually going in and talking with a hiring manager and doing more of a traditional behavioral interview. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about a time when you did X, Y, and Z. And then potentially meeting with other members of the team, other teams that they might interact with. So it depends on how many levels a company wants to introduce you to and have you get to know to uh, assess your your fit for the role. It does seem like it weeds out, it almost immediately weeds out those who sort of apply for stuff on a whim. Because Mm -hmm. you really, this sounds like a real, I mean, you really have to be committed to wanting the position to go through all those steps. And I think there's something to be said there, Ben, about what what you just said, because it is a lot easier for folks to apply nowadays. And especially if you're using one of those easy apply type systems where you're on LinkedIn and you're uh, clicking apply and just automatically submitting your resume, companies are receiving a lot of applications for these roles. So if they have some other assessments built into the process, it's easier for them to, to scale their hiring process. So I completely get it why they're doing this to make sure that they are finding candidates from a potentially a very big pool who are excited about this position and who have the skills and experience to thrive in the role. Are you convinced, though, that the sorts of steps that uh, candidates are being asked to make are always based on their ability to actually do the job? Because often mm-hmm. it feels like it's a, it's a, it can be a little bit random. It can be, yeah. and also the skills you're like, making a video is not the easiest thing. Some people have great video sk- shooting skills. Other people don't. And it seems mm-hmm. like an unfortunate way to separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think there are times when companies do this exceptionally well and times when they don't. 
to be quite frank. And companies that are doing it really well are considering the different skill sets of a candidate. So what I, I loved, what I saw recently, what a candidate did, what or a company did rather, was send out the interview questions beforehand to a candidate and say, this is exactly what we're going to be talking about so that you have a chance to prepare. And they're not testing the, the candidate on their ability to think on their feet uh, necessarily. That's not a big part of the job description. And they actually, the person coming into the role will have time to process and to think about strategy and to think about how they want to present. Then great, give them the opportunity to do exactly that before the interview. So I think when companies are thoughtful about what they actually are trying to assess and then instilling that as part of their process, that's spot on. When it's something that, like you said, you're testing for video making ability and video making ability is not part of the job. All right. We need to rethink where you where how you're screening candidates to start with. Becca Carnahan is with us this half hour. She's founder of Next Chapter Careers. We're talking about job interviews in 2023. It has become a job in of itself at times for many uh, candidates. You probably know that if you've been through an interview process of late. Uh, Becca, how did, how did, how is remote working impacting this? Because, you know, it used to be you had a job interview, you'd go into an office or maybe you'd have a phone call and then you'd go see them. Maybe you were from out of town, but you'd fly in to see them or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Now it seems like the whole process has changed because you can do a lot of this remotely. Has that been good or bad? You know, I think that, again, there's pluses and minuses here. I think the the pluses is that it is potentially, not always, um, some more convenient for candidates to be able to step away and take a half hour Zoom call rather than taking a half day off work if they are currently employed or look for childcare for a full half day and instead can fit in these Zoom interviews uh, or phone calls into their everyday. So there's good there. Um, but because it is so easy and convenient for the company, they don't need to fly someone in. They don't need to make a, a big production of it um, within the company. They might add more interviews into the process, or maybe they don't need all of those interviews. So this ease can be helpful, but also potentially slow down the process. If you're an employee and you're looking for a new job, should you be upfront with your employer? I mean, I know no, I know very few people ever are, mm -hmm. but it can be pretty glaringly obvious, right? I don't think many managers are fooled by their by their employees looking for new jobs. Yeah. Uh, always, uh, how upfront should you be? Yeah, understanding what your relationship is like with your manager is really important here. So, have you had conversations about your development within the company? Do they know? Does your employer know about your goals? Have you been able to job craft in your existing role to help you make steps? toward that that next goal that you have. And if the answer is is no to a lot of that and you're finding that the company culture is not one that focuses a lot on professional development and you don't see space to have that conversation in a way that feels safe and productive, then you're probably not going to tell your manager to be quite honest and then that's probably okay. Yeah. Uh, if you are in a situation where you've been having consistent conversations about how you're going to grow and develop. And it gets to a point within that company where there isn't necessarily a right next step, then it might make perfect sense to be having that conversation with your manager to have that support, uh, to have the easy reference conversation uh, when it gets to that point of having a reference for the next job. Uh, so I've seen both situations and I think you need to feel out how your relationship is with your manager and what the culture of professional development is within your organization. If we go back then to uh, when you are looking for a new job, what are your 
options as a, as a candidate because it feels like you don't have too many if you don't like the way the interview process or you're not too comfortable with the way the interview process is mm. going. Yeah. And I do like to empower candidates here to pull yourself out of an interview process if if you feel like they are not being respectful of your time, because that could be indicative of the company culture. So if you have a clear idea of what good company culture looks like to you, and the company is telling you through the interview process that they are not aligned with that culture, then you're not going to enjoy working there. So it might be a time for you to step out of the interview process and say, thank you so much for your consideration for considering me as a candidate for this position. I've decided that I am going to pull myself out of the process and I, I wish you all the best. You can do that. Uh, if you are in an interview process, but you are really excited about the company, you don't think that they are taking advantage of you or not being respectful, it's just taking a long time, you can ask the question, understand what are the next steps in this process? Uh, when can I follow up? You can be empowered to ask those questions to make sure that the company knows, yes, you are interested in this position and to move forward, but you're also going to advocate for yourself. Yeah. Anytime that ever happened in my experience, it was always well received. Um, you yes. know, the, uh, employees who sort of say, hey, listen, I'm, you know, I'm interested. I'm still here. Where are we at? And candidates too have obligations, I would imagine. That was something that came up a lot of late. I imagine now we're entering somewhat more uncertain economic times. Maybe that pendulum is swinging a bit. But in the past, there was a lot of ghosting going on. So candidates mm -hmm. have obligations too. Don't apply for something you don't want, I would imagine. Absolutely. And and why why would you? And I say this to to folks all the time. Your time is a valuable resource. If you're not actually interested in that role, use your time elsewhere. Identify the companies that you really do want to work for. Identify the roles that are a good fit. And you don't need to spend all of your job search time just simply applying online. You can instead use some of your valuable job search time to be networking, to identify those companies, to, to build relationships. Honestly, the stuff that can move the needle a lot faster than just submitting a bunch of applications. There's stats that come out about this all the time. And I think the number tends to shift a little bit, but it's always around 80 to 85% of new jobs are actually found through networking and referrals. And then when I say that to people, they say, oh my gosh, that's a huge number. But then I ask them, well, what are some of the ways that you found some of your previous jobs? They're like, oh, well, actually I was introduced by a friend from college or a former manager. So they have their own stories that actually directly correlate with the statistics. So if we know that so many new jobs are found through networking referrals, spend your time that way. And that's what's going to help you get closer to that goal and not well, making it too long. <laughs> indeed, Becca Carnahan, I'll, I'll, I won't make this too long. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Speaking of uh, movies, you know, I lived in China for a while. Um, they don't eat the same. I mean, they have popcorn. But the really popular things are sunflower seeds, really popular as snacks in movie theaters. Um, dried squid was one of them. Now, this is on a list that I saw. I remember there being dried squid at uh, at Chinese movie theaters, um, which, you know, you probably couldn't find here. You can sneak it in if you want. Dried plums, too, another big one. Coconut juice. So everywhere you go, things are a little bit different when it comes to the movies. Um, but popcorn, of course is the one for us. And we'll talk about that. Speaking of China, though, this year, this week, there has been a historic release of data. Now, throughout my lifetime, China has been the most populous country in the world. We've always talked about China's population. 1.4 billion people when I was living there. It's still there now. Um, but this week, for the first time, 
Numbers were released showing that last year, for the first time in six decades, the population of China dropped. Now, that's remarkable. Now, you think about the one-child policy, a fast declining and very low birth rate now. It's not surprising. And very little immigration. It's not surprising at all. And COVID. Uh, But if you look at it historically, it's a huge deal. You know, deaths outnumbered births for the first time in decades in China. And that means that we all know that India is going to overtake China as the most populous country sometime very soon. Um, And that could really reshape a lot of things in the long run. I mean, a lot of what China was able to do with that massive population as it emerged uh, economically and became more, uh, certainly, you know, found a way to be be a more, a bigger economic power, uh, but also to have more progress in the way that it delivered goods to build up this whole infrastructure that it now that we now know well because almost everything you buy or not everything but many much of what you buy is made there there's a whole infrastructure that allows that to happen um what happens when the workforce that was relied on to be the factory to the world starts to age out you know there's there aren't as many workers in china that's what's going to happen i was reading this incredible stat today there are 166 million people in china over the age of 65. As a standalone country, that would be the eighth largest in the world. Just the people over 65 in China would be the eighth most populous country in the world. So shrinking workforce, aging population, plummeting birth rate, almost no immigration. What impact could it all have? The data is new. The story is not. Joining me with more on this is Lauren Brandt. He's a Naranda Chair and Professor of International Trade and Economics at the University of Toronto. He specializes in the Chinese economy. Thanks for your time tonight. Uh, Nice to be with you. Well, we do throw around the term historic turning point a lot, but it felt like this week, I mean, we've been talking about it for a long time, but this this was a big week when it came to China's demographics. Uh, no, it, it definitely was. I mean, we knew that this point was was coming, at least in terms of statistically that, you know, the Chinese population or some indication that Chinese population was, in fact, will have reached its peak and was beginning to decline. So, yes, I think that symbolically uh, this is important, but we've seen this coming for some time. And it's also probably the case that, you know, the last you know few years that with kind of the, the decline that we've seen in fertility, you know, in China with COVID, it just kind of accelerated that point in time where there were going to be fewer births or fewer births than deaths just went meant that just kind of empirically, again, that the absolute size of the Chinese population was going to begin to contract. I know you're not a demographer by by trade, but this is one of those interesting collisions of factors whereby the one child policy versus an aging population, as well as a very low birth rate comparable to any Western country, have collided all at once in one country. It's sort of a demographic time bomb that we haven't seen play out this way before. Well, I think it's both the combination of demographic time bomb, but it's more about where it happens to be occurring in, tra- in terms of China's development. Right. Most, in most developed countries that you're going to find, you know, advanced countries, rich countries, at some point, again, short of just an awful lot of immigration into the country, that you're going to find that, you know, fertility, you know, ends up, you know, falling, you know, below uh, mortality rates. And so what that means then is that a population, again, in that country uh, is going to go ahead and peak and it's going to go ahead and begin to decline. What's unique about China is that here you have a country where, you know, per capita incomes, per capita GDP, maybe 20 to 25 percent. Uh, in terms of kind of relative to what they are in North America or Europe or the most advanced countries. So China, in some sense, is aging. You know, so this process, you know, China's in terms of this peak occurring is occurring much earlier in terms of kind of China's economic development uh, than what we observe in other countries. So China is in some sense getting older before it gets rich. 
And what kind of impact might that have, at least internally on the Chinese economy? Because, you know, having spent time there, obviously, they've been working quite diligently to try to build a bigger consumer economy within the country. Property is already always a big deal. What kind of impact might this have on China's economy within China? I think there's just multiple dimensions, some of which you just have gone ahead and that you've alluded to. So if we just kind of thought about in terms of what this means, so here we have this population that just isn't getting bigger, and that as this population, because it's not getting any bigger, it's also getting older. And so here we have a growing percentage of the Chinese population that happens to be older than 65. You know, today, you know, that's about maybe 15 or 16 percent. To perhaps put it into comparison here in Canada, it's maybe 18 or 19 percent. So you know, it's fairly you know high, and again, especially given China's level of development. So, you know, people, again, once they go ahead and they retire, there's several things. They're no longer working. So that means they're no longer going to be paying taxes. And so from a kind of a fiscal point of view, there's going to be slightly less revenue that the government's going to have as it's you know drawing again on those people who happen to be working, earning income, paying taxes into the system. So there's going to be on the fiscal side, there's going to be some implications. There's going to be slightly less kind of revenue kind of moving forward. You know, but it's also the case that, you know, the this, you know, the older generations that they tend to draw more again in terms of certain kinds of social services. So there's going to be new kinds of demands on social services and on in the on the economy. You know, it could be in the form of retirement. It could be in the form of you know medical kinds of services. So you're going to have those kinds of implications kind of moving forward where all kinds of public services are going to need to be provided to try to kind of uh, support that elderly population. You're going to be lacking, again, some of that fiscal base, you know, some of those resources that you're going to need to be able to support, again, those kinds of expenditures as you move forward. And we've also seen that uh, there aren't many ways to, I mean, there are some ways to combat this. But for instance, the retirement age is very low in China, specifically for for public sector workers. I think it's it's as early as 55 for women, 60 for men. Yeah, so it's relatively low, but I think... Here, I think what we kind of what we have to be kind of mindful of is that, you know, in China, one of the things that we've also seen kind of in the context of where the population is in some sense, the, the growth is slow, that China is also having a problem in terms of its labor market, labor force participation rates, you know, have been declining, at least from the perspective of economists, I don't know that we've been able to fully explain, you know, why it's the case that labor force participation rates are declining. And here, when I'm talking about labor force participation rates, I'm talking about people, let's just say from the ages of 18 to kind of 60, people who are kind of outside of that kind of retirement age. So these labor force participation rates have been declining. So clearly, there's all kinds of room, even amongst the working age population to go ahead and to kind of increase their labor force participation. How much of this happens to be voluntary? How much of it happens to be kind of reflective of just kind of weakness you know, in the labor market? You know, one of the things that we've seen, for example, over the over the last few years, so it's just the number of kids that are coming out of Chinese universities and colleges every year is kind of on the order of 10 to 11 million. And the labor market's having difficulty in terms of absorbing you know, those individuals who happen to be coming out. So there's some labor market issues you know, as well. So clearly there's room to go ahead and to maybe increase that retirement age better leverage those individuals who've acquired all kinds of skills. You know, we have the same kinds of conversations here in Canada and the U.S. about trying to better leverage you know, the skills of those individuals. But there's some other things that are going on in the uh, on it, at least in terms of the Chinese economy, that mean that just it's more than just trying to get you know, individuals, again, who happen to be older to, to work a bit more. Yeah, it's difficult, I guess, for China to try. It's always it's been trying since I was there to transition from being the factory to the world to being something very different and trying to educate its parts of its population to fulfill that. Yeah. But it's hard. It's a hard slog to get there. And I think we're witnessing that. Uh, we definitely are. And the other thing to kind of keep in mind here 
is that just even in terms of, of, of the demographics is that, you know, the reason why the pop reason why fertility, you know, has been declining is that, you know, we have that kind of as a reflection or as a product of the, that one child policy or the restrictive, you know, family planning policies is that we just have a much smaller group of, of women who happen to be of childbearing age. So let's just say between the ages of 20 and 40. But one of the things that's also been happening over the course of the last 15 or 20 years, if you kind of take a look in terms of what's happening to that group you know, of women, is that one is that they're getting married much later uh, in life. So that, you know, it used to be the case that, you know, for women in China, that once they kind of got out of, let's just say, out of school, kind of in their early 20s, they got married. Today that we find that women, kind of the average age of marriage in China, and this is going to be certainly be true for college educated, university educated is in their late 20s or in the early 30s. So that their behavior with respect to marriage is looking a lot more like what we observe in advanced countries. Uh, and it's also the case that there are more women who are deciding not to have kids in that regard, just for a variety of reasons, either because careers and other things are, are more important, or it could just also be that in the context of China, and here's some similarities with the rest of the world, the cost of having kids is expensive. Uh, that's true in China, it's true you know, here in Canada, it's true in the United States. And so, you know, some families are just deliberately saying, hey, look, you know, having kids are really expensive. You know, what all of this tells us is that, you know, China may try to go ahead and implement all kinds of policies to try to kind of redress this. It just means, though, that, you know, these policies certainly in the short run aren't going to have much of an impact because there's not much that you can do to increase women between the ages of 20 and 40, you know, who are of that childbearing age. And then for that group, it's going to really take an awful lot of policy intervention in order to encourage, again, these women, again, and you know their spouses to have more kids. The costs are just really high, and it's going to take just an awful lot kind of on the expenditure side in terms of policy, access to daycare, all kinds of policies, again, to make it, again, in their interest to have a second child, let alone having a third or a fourth. Lauren Brandt is with us. He is at the University of Toronto. He's a professor of international trade and economics, specializing in the Chinese economy. Uh, we used to always say here in Canada that when uh, the U.S. sneezed, we got a cold. When the Chinese economy starts to, to shake a little bit, and I know this isn't a new thing. You've talked about how you know the conditions for this have been going on for quite some time now. But when you look at where the Chinese economy could be headed and some of the struggles, what does that mean for the rest of us? I know that's a very broad question, but what kind of impact could that have on the global economy in the next few years? Like one of the things that we need to do is just kind of put in perspective of what the last four years of very rapid growth in the Chinese economy, you know, has meant. China has gone from being a relatively kind of uh, inconsequential, you know, member of the international economy to today where they happen to have an economy that, you know, parallels perhaps in size the economy of the United States. It's a huge trading country. So in that sense that, you know, China is extremely important in terms of the global economy. And that when China was growing at 6%, 8%, that that was contributed an even larger component to the overall growth that we happen to see in the global economy. So it provided certainly for the perspective of an economy like Canada, where, you know, we're kind of rich in agricultural goods and natural resources, just huge markets. You know, at the same time, China's growth, the productivity growth, you know, it also, again, provided that we began to source a lot more, you know, goods and, uh, you know, that were manufactured in China. So there's been huge benefits that we've been able to kind of realize from China, both you know, if you happen to be an exporting country, uh, our multinationals, again, from Canada, the United States, the rest of the world went ahead and, and invested in China as well. So we benefited from those kinds of things. You know, China's growth, you know, in fact, has been slowing and China's and this is China's growth has been slowing for some time. It's just not a COVID thing. But even before COVID that we began to see kind of a marked decline in terms of China's rate of growth. 
And so this clearly, again, has an impact, again, on the rest of the world. So that if we thought that you know, this growth you know, in the Chinese economy, this growth in demand was helping to sustain and support growth in the rest of the world, well, as China goes ahead and slows, so does you know, the rest of the world. So clearly, there's going to be implications, again, for you know, the rest of the world, just in, in part because as that growth slows, which is kind of a reflection of the way in which these economies, again, have been linked globally, it's just not good you know, for the rest of us. In terms of, I mean, so much of what we have bought, I mean, I, I know there's sort of this idea of onshoring and we're trying to diversify our supply chains a little bit, but so much of what was being made in China was uh, was driving down costs for consumers right around, Right, we'll, we'll stick to North America, for instance. Uh, have we come to an end? I mean, China has this huge infrastructure in place to allow for that. Uh, are those cheap products, is this coming to an end as well? In some sense, yes. I think one of the things that we've seen is that, you know, we benefited enormously from this enormous expansion in terms of China's manufacturing sector. We benefited enormously from the productivity growth that we saw in China's manufacturing sector, again, that helped to, to lower costs as China became kind of part of these global supply chains and capabilities in China went ahead and developed. And it developed, again, just across a wide cross-section, you know, of industries. I mean, initially it was things like textiles and apparel, moved to electronic goods. Today it's, you know, even kind of heavy machinery and equipment, you know, that China happens to be exporting to the rest of the world. So we have clearly benefited from that, that productivity growth in China that was just so much a part of that, that has slowed. Wages, again, have been rising, you know, in China as well. So clearly some of those benefits that we had enjoyed from being able to import these things less expensively from China, uh, I think in some sense that we're going to, this is not likely to continue at the same rate at which it had in the past. Clearly these firms, you know, both Chinese firms as well as multinationals, they're looking for, you know, other parts of the world where they can go ahead and can relocate, you know, their manufacturing as a way to try to continue to try to keep these costs low. But yes, I think you make a very good point that, you know, over time, as we move forward, we may see, again, just kind of continued pressure again on prices because we just don't have that luxury uh, of being able to import, again, these things slightly less expensively from China. Well, Lord, Brad, thanks so much. OK, well, thank you. My pleasure. This is the time of week where we speak to a journalist who's done some interesting work of late. And this is a fascinating story. Uh, you'll be well aware of the we're in an age of information, misinformation, and disinformation. We've seen a lot of conspiracy theories out there about the side effects that the vaccine, the COVID nineteen vaccine, could or will have. Um, there's a whole process for for complaints. There's a whole process to investigate uh, this stuff, and that's where our next guest comes in. She set out to find out more about a theory promoted by a small group of Canadian doctors who insist, without proof that the vaccine may have played a role in the death of an ever-growing number of their fellow physicians, even going so far as to publish photos and names of these physicians. Now, Global News spent months investigating that list, speaking to the families of many of them, and found no link, none. Where they were able to determine the most likely cause of death, it was most often cancer, heart attack, suicide. At least one wasn't even vaccinated. To make matters worse here, and again, there's nothing wrong with skepticism. Skepticism is fine. Harassment, on the other hand, false allegations, harassment, that's a different kind of story, right? And that's what Global News, that's what our next guest uh, appears to have found here. To, again, to make matters worse, families of those named find themselves the targets of harassment and abuse. I mean, it's really beyond the pale. Joining me now is Ashley Stewart. She's an investigative journalist at Global News. Thanks for your time tonight, Ashley. Of course. Thanks for having me. This is a really interesting one. What made you decide to dig into it? Because a lot of, you know, you see a lot of things go by that you just don't pay attention to. This one, you stopped and paid a lot of attention to it. 
I mean, it's a, it's a really difficult one because there is obviously the argument that comes out a lot around disinformation campaigns, which is that we shouldn't give these people and their theories more more of a platform or more airtime than they need. I mean, it's a difficult one, though, because I truly believe that these people already have platforms. They already have airtime. They are already gaining traction and gaining more followers with with the promoting that they're already doing. So the, I think for us, the media, the best thing we can do is actually pay these things attention, wonder why they're gaining the traction that they are, and spend time debunking them. Because then, I mean, someone said to me the other day, why, why did you write this? Because the anti-vaccine crowd are not listening they do not see reason they do not listen to the facts and i didn't write it for them at the end of the day it's for rational minds that might be seeing this conspiracy theory who might be easily persuaded to believe it it's so it's for them if they just google it a very simple google they'll find out the truth so tell me about this one specifically because it seems uh, particularly insidious it targets doctors um there were photos used i mean these are all things that um demand some investigation. What did you find? For sure. And I think that's what set this one apart and maybe really determined to kind of debunk it because these are real people with real lives and real families that are trying to grieve their passing while their names and their photographs are being used for really nefarious purposes to to sell this conspiracy theory that the vaccine is killing people, which is obviously not true in this particular instance these 80 doctors which is growing ever growing these doctors died from cancer that they'd been battling for 10 to 25 years they one of them had died while climbing k2 one of them had drowned while trying to save his son several of them had committed suicide due to ongoing mental health battles like it's just so far removed from reality that it made me very determined to set the record straight, if not for the entire wider public, for, for these grieving doctors' families, you know? What did you find? I mean, there are always going to be debates about the, you know, the, the efficacy of vaccines, about what their side effects are. I mean, that's normal. What did you find when you looked at, I mean, the claim here is that it's directly related to the death. Is that right? I mean, directly related. When I spoke to the doctor at the center of this conspiracy theory, he he said, I never claimed that all of these doctors were killed by the vaccine, but I believe the vaccine played a role in their deaths. How and could he I know? don't How could he know? <laughs> exactly. And I asked multiple times for any proof he had, and he just said that he was drawing these names out from uh, the Can- Canadian Medical Association's uh, in memoriam page, as well as a-, a bunch of other memorial pages online. But these, a lot of the times, I mean, all of the times that I could find, none of them said this person died from the vaccine. So they were just massive assumptions being drawn. You know, there was there's no proof whatsoever. But these people don't need proof because they're feeding off the virality of what they're saying going viral and effect and, you know, like traveling around the world and 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 gaining them these followers that believe them point blank without ever having done any research into what they're saying so at at the end of the day that is all they care about seemingly is this is this newfound fame when you looked into how fast this is spreading too you found that um it is gaining traction i mean and and certainly certain changes at twitter recently have helped uh but you found that this is a theory that is being gobbled up in many parts of the world and it, it originated here right yeah, it did. It, and it's, it's confusing. Or at least according to, sorry, these doctors, this particular one is from here. Yes, the man who um, 
claims that he is assembling this list of doctors as an Alberta physician. He he uses his medical credentials to sell his theories online, but he does not have an active medical license. There are a few other doctors who are also promoting this theory. They also do not have active medical licenses. But yeah, it's it's I don't know what exactly is making it go as viral as it is in the last few months. I mean, we've hit a point in the pandemic where I think people are kind of weary of the vaccine, where they're kind of just over the pandemic. I don't know if they're more easily persuaded. There's also the changes at Twitter. They took away their policy to tackle COVID misinformation. So they're no longer looking for it or policing it. So it can just go crazy. And I've definitely experienced that in the feedback to the article because people are out there swearing at me, giving me death threats, blah, blah, blah. And there's no recourse for them. So it is just this wild west of being on Twitter at the moment where anything that you want to say goes. I know that you went to speak to others who studied this, who know what the numbers are, who know what the side effects of, of the vaccine are, who look at this. What did they tell you? It's a hard one because obviously there are side effects for this vaccine, for the COVID vaccine. We all know the side effects, but this is the same for any vaccine, you know, but the number of people that are suffering from those adverse reactions are so minuscule. It's like something like 0.011% of all doses that have been administered. So we are not saying anywhere that the vaccine does not cause side effects. There's also been something like 400 reports of death being reported to Health Canada. The difference is that none of those deaths have been 100% linked to the COVID vaccine yet. So the fact of the matter is that these 80 doctors simply cannot be linked to the COVID vaccine under any Health Canada stats or anything like that. There is just nothing official that ties them to that vaccine. Ashley, what impact is it having on the families? Because you were saying they're getting harassed as well. Yeah, and I think that's the most tragic part about this whole thing. I mean, if you've just lost your husband, do you really want to be fielding calls from angry people who are sending you death threats and and giving you a whole barrage of abuse when all you're trying to do is is move on with your life and pick up the pieces. So there are definitely a few people, a few of the grieving families who spoke to me and said that people are believing this theory to such an extent that they're going out of their way to put up posters about it where they live or call into their homes or their, the doctor's offices to abuse them. And I think that that is having such a horrible effect on people that they were really willing to talk about what had happened and set the record straight. It's, yeah, you, it's, you shared a few very poignant stories. Perhaps talk about one of them. Yeah, I mean, one of the most poignant, I think, for me was a, a woman called Delaney Bath. Her mom committed suicide. She was a Kenmore physician and she committed suicide. And Delaney actually walked in and found her mother's body. So, and her mother had a really long standing battle with anxiety and depression. So, for her especially, I think this was very hard to take because she knows exactly how her mother died. She saw her body. She was the one that found her. So then seeing something like this, I mean, she was she was really upset and she was very determined to kind of be the person who really spoke out about it and, and, and really put the record straight. And you pointed this out uh, on social media not long ago as well. This is spreading even to the regulatory bodies like the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario is moving all its hearings online because, I mean, there's a concern out there now about harassment and abuse amongst the very people who are supposed to be looking into these things for us. 
Exactly. And at the end of the day, the college, unfortunately, has not been able to reprimand or discipline or whatever you want to call it, hold these physicians to account because the investigations into them are dragging on. They say they need their policies changed to be able to deal with these effectively, but the Ministry of Health refuses to step in despite them begging for it. It's kind of a mess. No one's really taking uh, responsibility. And in the meantime, these doctors are allowed to continue spreading whatever they want to spread about the vaccine and saying, whatever they want to say. There's 30 physicians in Ontario alone who are currently being investigated for their COVID-19 related conduct, which is a lot of people. And it just keeps going on. And unfortunately, I mean, I, I talked about this in the story that the theory was posted, it was printed, sorry, in a fringe Canadian newspaper called Druthers. And that was delivered to people's homes. So not only is it online, but it's in physical copy too. And someone wrote to me the other day, actually, after the story came out, saying that their elderly neighbor read that and because it was printed in a newspaper, believed it to be true. It is having real world effects on people. And I think like, I mean, you just got to go onto Twitter for five minutes at the moment. People are angry, you know, like society is really polarized and this is not helping it. It is turning us this whole thing into an us versus them scenario. And it's again, there's no proof. It's not based in reality. It's just designed to turn people against each other. I know that you spoke to others in the, for this article. Who's equipped to counter these claims then? I mean, how do you have, uh, I mean, people are entitled to have fears about things. I mean, we don't want to condemn everybody here. But at the same time, you know, <laughs> yeah, you need to base some of this in truth. Who's equipped to counter this then, do you think? I guess we are. I guess yeah. the journalists are. I guess it kind of... But they don't trust us either, right? I mean, that's part of the issue. I know. But this is the thing. is like there is no one at the moment. There is no hope. <laughs> as, depressing, as depressing as that sounds, I, I don't know the answer to that, to be completely honest. It's, it's a very difficult one because... As you say, like we have to turn. If no one trusts anyone, I, a lot of people think we're living in this kind of post-truth society, and everyone's very paranoid about everything going on. It's just, and you're right. We're not saying that everyone should take the vaccine, and we all need to be very pro-vaccine, and that's the end of it. I think everyone should make informed decisions, but don't start conspiracy theories that are not based in truth and that have really harmful repercussions for for people yeah and and to harass people to harass the families who people who've lost loved ones i mean that in of itself seems and you know it seems it seems so beyond the pale that it's hard to hard to understand i can understand why you wanted to look into it yeah exactly and yeah to be honest the feedback was i was expecting a lot more abuse but most of it has been really positive so it really does it does actually give me a little bit of hope that people are people can kind of fight against this disinformation and will keep seeking the truth. They just need people to kind of put it in black and white for them. Well, Ashley Stewart, thank you so much for walking us through that. Much appreciated. Of course. Thanks for having me.